Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. As per usual, it is another episode of Two Developers Down Under. As per usual, my name is Mark Mandel, and as you join us again, I am joined by my incredibly intellectual partner in crime, Kai Koenig. Kai, how are you doing this wonderful morning? I'm doing very well, Mark. Thanks a lot for this awesome introduction. That was actually a really nice one for a change. It's a really nice one. I thought I'd, I'd mix it up a little. Uh, maybe next week I'll just kind of you know go back to giving you a dig or something, you know, just to keep you on your toes. Yeah, the thing is, you know, with um, our thing of the day, which is going to occur in a few seconds, I guess, that whole introduction with being awesomely intellectual is going down the drain right away, because my thing of the day is, today is Nicole Richie's birthday. Right. Well, I'm I'm actually kind of upset, because there are some really awesome things that have happened today, and you've missed them all. Really? Um, Well, today, let's have a look. Um, The Hobbit... By, uh, J- uh, by Tolkien was published. Yeah, I mean, you. To be fair, you said that before we even started discussing things of today, and I couldn't take it then. Well, I, didn't, I, I even hadn't hadn't had a look yet. <laughs> Hurry up! Come on. I mean, today's the birth of Stephen King. You could have gone that. It's the 64th birthday. Um, That's okay. Yeah. If you really want, you know, uh, previous Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, 54th anniversary. Oh, but really? I mean, who cares about Kevin Rudd? Uh, singer Len- Leonard Cohen. It's his 77th anniversary as well. There's a lot uh, of good stuff going on today, and you just you just haven't done your research. So I think I'm going to have to take back the incredibly intellectual and uh, come up with something else a little later on. Okay, cool. Do that. <laughs> oh, if I want to go down the same road, the TV show Perry Mason, if you ever watched that back in the day, 54th anniversary, TV show probably our parents grew up with, though you're kind of old, so you might have, you might have watched it a bit. I have no idea what that TV show is. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard, even heard the name. Really? Oh, well. Yeah. Strangely enough, I have, and I'm younger than you. I don't understand. Keep in mind that I grew up in Germany, where people usually watch very different TV shows from the rest of the world. You know, we do, in Germany, you don't get that many of the Australian and US TV shows. They have their own productions, usually. The rest of the world? I don't understand. It makes my head. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so we have yet another wonderful episode where we are joined by several uh, fantastic speakers from the CF Objective ANZ Plus Flex Conference. Um, Who do we have today, Mark? Who do we have today? I'm so excited. Broadcast voice. Um, So starting in alphabetical order, uh, first name alphabetical order, just to be clear in case some people are wondering about that, like one of our speakers. In fact, the first of our speakers, the indemnable Dennis Clark, who I like to refer to as the guy that likes to bug me on Twitter and say, you've done that wrong, Mark. How are you doing today, Dennis? I'm pretty good, thanks, Mark. How are you? I'm having a good morning. I'm up nice and early. So, Dennis, do you want to give us a, a little bit of background on yourself and the things you get up to when you're not telling me that I'm wrong? <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, I'm a Cold Fusion developer. been doing Cold Fusion development for over 10 years now. I'm in Sydney right now. I, I actually... Um, well... I, I was born and grew, grew up in, in first Melbourne and Sydney, but... Um, I started my cold fusion career actually in the United States about 13 years ago. Worked for a um, large healthcare, uh, non-profit healthcare system over there doing inter- intranet development work. Um, last year I moved back to Sydney and I got a job with um, at Demon with Jeff Bowers, who you had in your last podcast, um, doing some Far Cry work and stuff like that. Um, 
yeah, and been been oh been involved in some open source projects around the place. Um, I'm a contributor to the Model Glue framework and have done some um, contributions here and there with Cold Spring and a couple of other things. So, so yeah, pretty interested in open source stuff too. So whereabouts were you in the U.S.? Um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, okay. So East Coast. Actually, not too far from where I, I lived in Atlanta for three years, so we were close. Yeah, yeah. I we had relatives over there, so it was um, a f- about a depending on how fast you drove, it was like a three or four hours straight drive down an interstate I eighty five, and so so yes, we may have even been different. in the same city at the same time. Possibly. Yes. Oh my god. I <laughs> so uh, moving on down our list, our uh, our second of our three wonderful speakers, Gavin Bo Bumanis. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Uh, all the old wogs say it differently, so it doesn't really matter. I haven't I haven't heard I haven't heard any two from the same family pronounce it the same yet, so don't feel too bad about it. That's all right. So how how should I be pronouncing your last name? Oh, so I, I say Bomanis. Some say Bomanis. It really doesn't. Potato. Really doesn't potato. Me. That's right. Wonderful, Gavin. So, what's what's your uh, history? What's uh, people don't know who you are? Um, I'm a Cold Fusion developer and have been since 2000. Um, before that, I was in the Navy for 10 years. Um, I currently work for a company called Pellcare that writes patient management software for palliative care, um, which is pretty interesting. Took me a little while to um, get used to the fact that um, I'm dealing in death. Um, but outside of that, they're a good mob to work for, and as long as they keep paying, I'll keep turning up. That Always a plus. Like, sounds like a good plan, yeah. And last but not least, we've got Mike Henke uh, from o- Omaha in the U.S. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Um, I'm Mike Henke. Uh, I've worked in cold fusion development since graduating from college in '99. Uh, I've lived in Omaha, like Kai mentioned. And then I briefly lived in D.C. for a couple years, and I've moved back to Omaha. And uh, I'm a big advocate of productivity tools that help me with uh, my development process, like uh, Eclipse with Myland and TaskTop, Git for source control, uh, Track for a ticket system, and then CF Wheels for a framework. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm just thinking you might actually be the person who has the longest travel to come to CF Objective. Um, yeah, yeah I think it's twenty-four hours. From yeah, it, might, it might it might be you or it might be Michael Labrolia. I'm not quite sure because he's somewhere in Philadelphia, I think. So for him, it might be a bit oh, worse. Yeah. But, yeah, even yeah. Worse. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So we think. should have probably a chat a bit bit later what made you actually want to come to Australia I find that always quite interesting what motivation people have to you know sit in a plane for 24 hours to travel halfway around the globe to a conference I mean okay. saying, yeah. saying that doing it myself all the time <laughs> <laughs> or, or we could have that discussion now so <laughs> we could certainly have that discussion now <laughs> as well. whatever <laughs> yeah um, my motivation was Pretty much, I've never been to, well, I've been to Canada, but I haven't really been outside of the United States. And uh, Australia just sounded like awesome. I've seen Mark at plenty of conferences over the years, and I saw you at uh, in Kansas City for the uh, 
conference. Uh, what was that? I names uh, escapes me. E2WC. Yeah, that one. And so I just wanted to spread the CF Wheels love and Myland and Tastop. So I'm glad to come down and talk to you guys about that. Cool. That sounds really good. So what are we doing next? Going back to Dennis in alphabetical order and have a bit of a chat about Dennis' talk, I guess. Sounds good. So, Dennis, I believe you're doing managing code changes with a source control system. Do you want to give us a little yes. bit of background on that? Okay. Um, yeah, start from, with background. Um, I've been a um, big believer in using source control systems for doing my work, um, but um, I'm like, over the years with talking to developers that I've worked with and um, other developers meeting at conferences, that that um, not not all developers feel the same way. Um, some of them just like, and it's not really, not necessarily a matter of um, of um, skill levels. I've 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 come across quite skilled developers that just feel like source control is just get gets in their way. It's just some red tape, and I I think part of the problem is not understanding what. Um, what it's there for and what benefits it gives the developers and the project as a whole. Um, so, in particular, if you if we look at it as just like one more thing to do, then it kind of gets in the way. But if you look at it as a way to manage the changes that you're as a developer making, so that the right changes end up in the in in your ship releases, then it's an extremely helpful tool. So. So, so I'm going to be talking about about the the issue of the, the, what kind of changes we we do in in um, to our code enhancements, bug fixes, um, variations, things like that. Um, explain how how they get from from code to where we need to get them to the 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 live environment, for example, and the type of issues that that occur with getting those across there, for example, things like the fact that that these things happen in parallel. You've got it's not like you can say, okay, we've got we've got a product out there now. Let's just fix these bugs and push those up there, and then it's oh now let's add these enhancements. Then let's put those up there. Unfortunately, they all get mixed up. So while you're doing while you're adding new features to your product, you're also getting bug reports and you're also getting, oh, can we change this all at the same time? And it starts getting to be a problem with change management of what, what's where, which bugs have been fixed, which features have been implemented, which changes have been made. And from that perspective, source control can be extremely helpful. But to do that, you have to know how to use it properly. You have to know how to use the features in there, how to use branches, how to when to commit, like that, all those sorts of things. So that's that's where I'm going to be um, coming from and talking about how to how to use your source control more effectively, how to do your changes and use those features so that you have better confidence at about what you're shipping when it comes to point to okay go live with this you know what what um what bugs have been fixed what changes have been made what that sort of stuff um yes yeah. so 
It, it sounds a little bit as if your talk would be reasonably generic and you know not particularly geared towards a certain source control system. Is that the right impression? I, I'm aiming for that because I know that um that there are different products out there. Um, I know that's part of like the the group that um, the the speak the guests that we have today each are are, are interested in a different one. I'm a I'm a I've played with 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 Git and used Subversion for projects, but I'm I'm personally have a preference towards Mercurial. Um, I know from listening to his tweets, um, Mike is a Mike is a Git guy. And I saw from the um, speaker bio that Gavin's involved with the Subversion project, and I think they're all very good tools. And so, um, yeah, I'll be to, I'll be aiming my my talk. There is there will be I will probably bring in a few points that are specific to distributed source control systems. So things that you can do in in in, in sorry in Git and Mercurial that aren't currently supported in in subversion but but I'm trying to keep it as generic as possible okay cool that sounds good to me I mean that brings in brings up an interesting point you said basically that and you pointed out that each of our guests today has some sort of um, their own preference probably when it comes to comes to version control systems um, and we particularly mentioned Mercurial, Git, and Subversion in that little discussion. What about all those other systems, you know, outside of the mainstreams? Things like, I don't know, Bizarre. You know Visual Source Safe. <laughs> oh, no! Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to, sorry, the, the reality is it is around there, and it's oh, everywhere, you know, or Team Foundation Server and all of those things, basically. I mean, what place do they have in... In you know in the in the development world out there from your point of view. Um, well, I'll start with the first one you mentioned. Um, um, Visual Source Safe must die, must die a horrible death at this point. I worked with that was the source control system used in my previous job, and it was horrible. It was its biggest problem was that um, it it tended to corrupt my corrupt history and there's there was no way to figure out until after the fact until way after the fact that there's a problem and it becomes almost impossible to fix so never mind on top of that you've got it's it's very limited in terms of things like how you do branches and all that sort of stuff it gets extremely difficult to use and, and i think i think a lot of organizations had the problem that we had was that was that 10 years or 10 years ago or so they they decided let's pick a source control system. They looked around and things like um, the Windows interfaces for Subversion wasn't that great. Um, actually, probably not non-existent at the time. CVS was starting to get there, but still not quite at that level. And so, if you were on a Windows development team or Windows platform, then um, Visual Source Safe made sense. But once they started get it, once you adopt that, implement your practices for the team, they become you. You get this resistance or this this inertia to say, "Oh, yeah, we've got something in place now. You can stop hassling us about um, 
putting in source control, you've got source control. Be happy with it. And not realizing how bad it is compared to the the other source control systems that have come up since then. Um, and so, but yeah, it's it, Visual Source Safe is hot. Um, hey, Dennis, um, I have an experience about Visual Source Safe. Um, I've been at a company, my previous company, we switched from Visual Source Safe to Git, and the learning curve was actually not too bad at all. I mean, have, so you mentioned your previous company was using Visual Source Safe. Did you guys attempt to change? Or we had we had we had discussions um, a few months before I left there, um, and I don't know what ended up happening after that. I was I was actually pushing them towards. I was oh, my recommendation to that team was at that time was actually subversion um mainly because the way that they were doing their development um it was the the, pretty much the entire team in one office close quarters so and and we didn't actually they they yet to got they yet to to get to local development which was the other thing that i was trying to push to them so that um all the developers were were doing their work on the same shared server, which not not really ideal. And yeah. it, and when you when you're at that environment, it's like Git becomes virtually impossible to use, and even yeah, we, the version is really difficult. It's not meant to be used that way. Yeah, um, we did that with the Git, and it was noticeable with your network connection because we all had. Uh, instances out on the development server and we'd push our stuff to there and you could tell that it was a little slower from if you were just working locally with git because it's so fast that way yeah one um i don't they may have revisited that issue because one of the problems was too was that our um developer workstations weren't weren't up to modern standards so running servers locally when you've got and this is like a corporate environment, so you're thinking we've got everyone needs to have Outlook running and all that sort of stuff Outlook. on top. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Outlook. <laughs> and so it didn't really leave much memory on the computer to run a Cold Fusion server so for development. So, um, but but that's since been resolved. So I don't uh, think there's anything wrong with Visual Source Safe. I mean, sure, everyone loves a good game of walk around the office and see who's got what file checked open. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a very strong memory I have of working with Visual Source Safe. Hey, can you have you finished with that file? Can I have that file? Because I need that file. I need to do like two oh, yeah, lines. Yeah, can, yeah, can, yeah. I, can I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get. I'll, yeah, I've I've come across that multiple times. <laughs> oh, after you're done with it, then he needs to do something with it, and then I can do. No, there's somebody after him. Okay, well I'll wait. <laughs> yep. Lots of fun. Well, that sounds like a, a pretty a pretty cool talk. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, yeah, definitely one of the downsides of uh, doing these these presentation roundtables is I listen to everyone and I go, these all sound like awesome topics. Now I have to go to everything. And for some reason, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to be able to go to everything at all at once. <clears throat> okay, so moving moving down the list, uh, G is coming after D in our alphabetical order. Uh, Gavin, oh, yeah. 
you are speaking to a topic near and dear to my heart, test-driven development using MX Unit and continuous integration. That's a lot of words. What does that mean? What are you doing? Um, well, we'll kick off... The, I plan on kicking off the presentation with just a... Um, you know, a brief discussion on what is test-driven development and, and why I think it's an appropriate uh, methodology for programming. It's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but, you know, I, I like it and I, and I get how it how it um, helps development. Um, and then we'll... Um, the talk's really about um, MX Unit, Ant and, and um, Jenkins more so than test-driven development. But, you know, you need, you need to understand what test-driven development is and get, get, a, get a nice background about it. And then we'll move into um, MX Unit, writing a couple of tests, how they work, um, what you need to do to set it up, the fact that you can have it running in Eclipse or running via the web, and the fact that you can have it running via the web means that you can um, script particular tasks with Ant and Ant plays nicely with Hudson which means or, or Jenkins which means that you can have your continuous integration occurring all at the same time which um, and my my um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively decent coder but the thing that really get gets me um, gets me going in the in the workplace uh, are things like um, valuing processes over results and things like that and the more systems you can put in place to take humans out of the equation the more repeatable um, your tasks are and the more reproducible good results become so um, valuing a process over over results ultimately bears out good results in the end so for those people who are listening who may not know what TDD is or continuous integration, do you want to just give us a quick, like, very quick synopsis of, say, like, the process of how you'd write code and how it would go through to continuous integration and so you can explain all those concepts sort of a bit end to end? Sure, certainly. Okay, so let's just assume that I um, need to write a function for producing error emails in my application. So what I'll do is I'll first write a test and the test will be... And I'll, and I'll work out that what I need to do is have a function that creates email. So what I'll do is I'll create a test that attempts to run a function called create email. Now, I haven't yet created this function, so what's going to happen is I write my test and I run the test and the test fails. And that's... and. You, you, and you actually see it fail and you get this red bar in your Eclipse IDE and you go, oh my goodness, my test failed. Okay, now I need to go and create the relevant code to make my test pass. And the benefit that has is that you end up writing, well, well the, the whole aim of TTD is to write the simplest, um, most elegant, discrete code that you can, but you only write as much as re is required to get the code, to get the test to pass. So straight away, you haven't over-engineered your, you haven't over-engineered your application. You've purely written the simplest code that you possibly can to get the test to pass. Once that's going, you move on and create a test for every function that you feel, that, or, or method that you feel that you need that you need to have in your application. And you just continue by writing your test first, then writing as much code as is required to get the test to pass. And that's kind of the premise of test-driven design. Um, and, and like I said, the benefits are the code that you write is, is, is simple. You don't over-engineer it because you're only working on one discrete task at a time. It's, you know, you don't, you don't sort of get lost um, in the forest 
you know you're just working on a on a particular discrete bit bit of the application at a time which means you know you you, you feel more um more comfortable with going to your um your colleague in the ne- in, in on the next desk and saying hey I'm working on this specific little task here here's what I'm thinking of doing am I missing something so instead of having to talk in great big high level terms you can actually talk technical speak about a given task and we find in our workplace that it increases communication and you know sort of take takes the fear out of being wrong as well because you know who cares if you happen to have you know thought about it in you know then someone comes up with a better idea than what you did well it's only on a little task and you haven't invested all this great to- you haven't invested a whole lot of time in this great big high level plan and someone comes along and says well that's just completely crap because of this 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 and this and before you know it you've wasted three hours and the next time you've got an idea to pass around the workplace well all of a sudden you're feeling a little bit more timid about it because the last time you spent three hours working on it and everyone told you that your idea was rubbish so by keeping the ta- by being task oriented um, you manage to keep everything nice and discreet and if you know if everyone turns around and says well all of your ideas are crap well it's you know no, no one likes to hear that anyway but my point being you haven't gone and invested 10 hours of your day into this fabulous idea you've only spent two minutes thinking of it and you, you know you're relatively just shooting from the hip and saying hey what do you think of this so um, we, we find that it actually increases um, communication which you know and by com- by increasing communication, you know your um, the rest of the development team is across what you're doing more readily. makes 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 coding life a little more enjoyable, really. And then how does that how does that then feed into your, your continuous integration? How does that what, what is continuous integration? How does that kind of feed into that? Okay, well, um, what what we also do so continuous integration is. Well, the way the way we use it is is pretty much as a um, a platform for scheduling um, ant tasks, and although you can do a whole swag of stuff with ant, um, we basically use it as a souped up batch file or shell script, and so we have um, we have an ant task that simply runs all of our tests for us and does nothing else, and we'll have another ant task that can submit. SQL changes to, to databases, um, and that's that's its own separate task. And the idea of Jenkins is um, when and you can either run you can either hydraulically set tasks off, or you can have your continuous integration platform pull your version control system. So every time you submit a file to this particular location, and it might be a um, it might be a release branch that you have it looking at, or you may in fact say, every time I commit a file to anywhere in the repository, I want all my tests to be run for me so that I know that the last change that I made hasn't gone and broken anything. So you can actually, so you can have this continuous integration, basically run your tests every time you do something. Once you're happy with it and you've branched off your release Code, you can again. You can have another have another um, task fired off in continuous integration that goes and copies that branch up to your production server for you. Um, some pe- some people, um, or, you know, and you can also do it inter- in, as an intermediate step and have it send send um, send code to staging as well. Some people don't like using it for production deployment, but 
I'm all for reproducible, repeatable results. And the more that I can get a script to do and keep me as a human out of it, because, you know, what used to happen would be, well, I've changed these three files. I know I've done that implementing this feature and I'll send these three files up to production and all of a sudden they won't work because... I've forgotten to run the SQL to update the database. Or it actually turns out that I altered the on request end method in application.cfc and I completely forgot to copy that up as well. So by using a script and keeping the humans out of the, out of the process, you end up ensuring that all your code gets copied and it's always repeatable and the whole team knows, press this button here to make the build run manually or every time I commit to the trunk of subversion all my tests will auto magically run for me everyone's in the same everyone gets the same environment and the results are predictable how do you how do you deal with um cold fusion specific scenarios for example such as um clearing the trusted cache or you know reloading whatever framework you build your code on reloading some configuration files etc etc um, we actually have a template that um, goes and clears the cache, um, deletes all the web service whistles, for example, and mm -hmm. those sorts of things, and we just have it run that particular run that particular page as well. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I was just thinking, actually, while you were talking, it would be nice to have a cold fusion admin aunt task where you actually there you know, is one. There is one, really? There is one. Um, Alagad wrote one. Uh, an of but it's, it's not an official one. Oh, not an right? official one, no. Okay. I I, I, find it. That is but interesting it, because that would be really nice to trigger all those actions like clearing the template cache or trusted cache or something um, from, from an art build right away without having to go through a template. Um, that would be nice. Here we go. Let's see if it's still up. Here we go. Ah. Uh. No, nah, it's not up anymore. I don't know what Alligator did with it. But they did write one. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I played with it for a while. I'm, I thought it's, it's still there. It's hard to find. It hasn't been updated for a while, though. I think it was built for um, Cold Fusion 8 and Ant 1.6 or something like that. So, um, But, yeah, it, it works fairly well. Um yeah, I would, I, would, I, I would like to see see more of that sort of thing happen. Oh, um, one thing I wanted to mention after from what Gav was talking about, um, if for those of you who have heard with heard of a um, Agile's a development approach called Lean Lean Development, um, I thought it was interesting when I read about that that. That they have a set of practices on, on lean development, but they have two practices that they call zero practices. That means practices that you must have in place before you can even start thinking about um, following lean development. Um, the first practice is source control, and the second practice is scripted builds. So exactly what Gavin was talking about, and th so they're. Um, their position is until you've got those um, two practices down, you can't really be doing lean, lean development or agile in, in general. So I thought that was interesting. So Gavin, are you coming from what operating system are you going to be showing Windows or 
Unix. Um, Mac OS. Mac, okay. But, um, you know, apart from, apart from, um, uh, there, there actually isn't, there is, there isn't all that much that's really OS specific, to be honest. Um, there's, well, you know, there's, there's some things with, with respect to copying files. So, you know, I, I use, I use CP, for example. But, you know, considering we're all technologists at, at, at a Cold Fusion conference, you know, it's relatively easy to take the sample scripts and go from CP to copy. Although saying that, there's a fabulous ant task to do it. So you don't even really need to, but to, to go down that far. And, um, you know, that, that's one of the benefits of using, of using a, of using tools is that, they're relatively OS agnostic, so there's, um, there's, it's normally a case of pick up this script developed by somebody else and change some paths, and everything should work as as um, as described. Yeah, and I think even you know depending on how you build your scripts, you can probably even customize that quite nicely and have like variables for you, whatever copy command, and then just use the variable within the on task or within your batch file or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, I think everyone should be able to take one of those automated build processes from Mac or Windows and port it to a different platform. It's not really that hard. Um, no, well, um, one of our developers, for example, works on Windows. I work on Mac. Um, oh, another one works on Windows as well. So... We we have a mixed work environment, so um, yeah, and we and we we all we all use the same we all use the same tools, so it's it's certainly something that's doable and not and and not difficult. Yeah, um, slightly unrelated to your talk, you are also um, a patch manager or the patch manager for um, the Apache Subversion project. Is that right? I am. Yeah. I found that quite interesting when I read your bio. I thought, oh, wow. I mean, you know, that was... I know you for quite a while from mailing lists and stuff, but that was sort of something I totally missed the whole time. Um, yeah, I fly like the radar a little. Yeah, I'd like to ask you two questions. Like, sure. One is, um, why is Subversion still relevant? And that would be... Ooh, I think that will that lead that... into an interesting discussion. <laughs> and the other question is, how did you end up getting this position or this job, like becoming the patch manager for Subversion. Right. Well, start, I ended up with the job. I'll start with, I'll start with the second one first. <laughs> I, I, I started with the job because um, we were using Subversion already. And I pretty much use Subversion not because I have a great lust for it over Mercurial or Git. It's more a case of that was the first version control system I started. Oh, actually, I started with CVS, but Subversion had already been released. So it was, you know, a very, very short period I used CVS. Um, and I've kind of just stuck with it ever since. It's what I'm comfortable with. It's what I know how to use. And that's that's just pretty much how it was. Um, as far as becoming the patch manager goes, I started um, loitering around the Subversion mailing list and um, sent them an e email asking them how how um, they went around actually deleting a file out of, out of the repository so that as if it was never there. 
because um, as you know, good old with, with any version control system, you can resurrect a deleted file, which is you know one of its one of its great features. Um, so needless to say, they said, oh, there's been this long-standing discussion in the Subversion project about a um, about a function about an obliterate function, and it turns out that technically it's really really difficult to do, and there have been many attempts to try and get it to work, and it's. With, with respect to the way Subversion is currently designed, it's all but impossible to implement. So that's, so I started there, and I just happened to be on the mailing list at the time, and I was I was in a, I was working at RMIT University, and I managed to have relatively um, sizable chunks of spare time going during my workday. So I just sent an email and said, "Look, I'm not a C coder, but." Is there something non-technical I can do, and and help and help out? I've been using Subversion for a few years, and well, you know, I've got some time to burn. How can I help out? And the the patch manager at the time, Daniel Shahaf, said that he was um, the patch manager kind of by default, but really didn't have time to do it, so I could take over that task if I wanted. So that was about oh, three or four years ago now, I think, and I've been doing it ever since. And so basically, my job is. If um, if someone commits a patch to the Subversion project that doesn't have commit rights to the project, then it's my job to keep that particular patch proposal in the view of the committers so that it gets the appropriate attention that it requires. Whether that be a, thanks for your patch, but it's not going to work because of A, B and C, try and resubmit it again all the way through to that patch is awesome, thanks very much, and it gets committed on the first draft. But ultimately it's my job just to make sure that public um, submitted patches don't fall through the cracks and not get submitted. Okay. So that's I think that's a very, very interesting educational example for everyone who wants to be more involved with open source. You know, you can, with most open source projects, you can just go up there show your interest and say, look, I've got some time, can I help? And most projects will be happy to get you involved. Oh, certainly. You know, there, there, there are lots of, you know, and, um, you know, Mark Mark also faces the same problems where he has, you know, you know, the, the, the long, well, I don't, I don't mean it rudely, but the long, the long running, um, uh, what's the word I'm after? The, the, the delay, if you like, in getting CS2 out hasn't been the fact that CS2 code isn't finished, um, isn't releasable. It's a case of people haven't gotten around to being um, to assisting him with getting all the documentation done, and that's really the holding point. And you know, you don't need to be an absolute coding guru to get involved with that and help with the documentation so that the project can get officially released. Yeah, I'll throw into that too that um. The Molu project is having that exact same problem as well. We've, we're having a 3.2 release that we're just finishing up, but um, the coding, the almost all the coding for it was done months ago, and the problem has been documentation, getting some more beta testers, all that sort of stuff, and that that's can be a real um, cause of drag for these kinds of projects. Yeah, I can I can definitely attest to that, and especially when all of us tend to uh, tend to be, I would say, maybe possibly overachievers, and we all put a lot on our plate because we can't say no to doing interesting stuff. Suddenly, it's like, okay, well, I've got a conference and I've got an open source project, and I'm on a steering committee for this and that, and blah 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 blah. So, 
Yeah, that's that's definitely definitely true. I'm trying to get some more stuff done. I, I, basically, I have two sections I want to complete for Cold Spring 2 and then get it out the door, and I just need to finish off the ORM section, and I think that's it. But it's yeah, it's been a real struggle just to write like a couple of pages. It's been ridiculous. So is Cold Spring 2 the project Adobe is going to put into the next Cold Fusion release then? Ah, oh, who knows? They're <laughs> <laughs> so secretive, Mark. I don't know. I don't well, they've already announced one for the next version. They're taking Java Loader for CF10. So, yeah, I think if, I think if we want um, if we want something really cool implemented in Adobe, we should just even if Mark doesn't write it, we should just get him to put his name to it, and Adobe snaps yep. it up. Yep, there we go. Yep, there we go. So, um, quickly Sorry. coming back to Gavin to my second question: Why is the version <laughs> still relevant? <laughs> um. Well, it's still relevant because it's um, in wide use in the enterprise. Um, the ability to have um, look, I'm, I'm sure the others do it. I think it's more a case of um, uh, what's what am I after? Um, familiarity, I suppose. But um, it's real. It's really presents itself as being an enterprise VCS. Um, and you know the ability to have all the all the pre-commit and the post-commit hooks, and you know change all your line endings so that they're all the same with, in in mixed OS environments. All those sorts of things appeal to um, enterprises where you know they have this great bureaucracy, and you must do it like this, and you you may you may not commit changes unless they have the A, B, C, D, and E, and all those kinds of rules can easily be enforced using Subversion. So I think that's pretty much the history of why 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 it's used and it's still relevant it's still it's still very actively developed um 1.7 is currently in release candidate and it does one of you know one of the big complaints of subversion has always been the fact that it litters your working copy with all these hidden svn folders all of those have now been removed and replaced with a single sqlite database and as a result of that all the subversion internal workings are significantly faster because you're no longer doing um directory tree, directory walking your it's all now handled in with sql and the embedded SQL light. So it's actually significantly faster than 1.6 as well. Really? I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Because mm. I I've used SVN like four or five years ago, and it was seemed like it was painfully slow. You had all those files all over the place, and branching was unintuitive for me for some reason. And they fixed branching too, haven't they, within the last they couple have. of years? They have. Yeah, 1.5 and 1.6 did a lot of work with branching. They implemented a reintegrate function for when you um, pass back from your feature branch into the trunk. Um, that was that was um, tidied up in 1.6, and um, and that came with that came with its own kind of um, list of issues where you would you would um, perform a merge operation and all this seemingly unrelated merge merge metadata also got committed with you with when you committed your, the results of your merge, and people have you know you know there there are many many discussions on the user mailing list about how I only edited this file and when I merged it back all these 376 other files ended up telling me that they required updating as well so all of that's also been fixed in this up in this um, that's good uh, 1.7 release as well so um, yeah so and and yeah and mercurial um, pretty much um, 
I don't, I don't, and I don't know whether it was a you know part of the project or part of the users, but you know Mercurial Mercuria was kind of advertising itself as well. Why would you use Subversion? Because Subversion's merging is completely crap. Mercurial does fabulous merging. Come and come come and join the fold. And I wouldn't say Subversion ever had really poor branching and merging, but we certainly suffered from not being particularly um, vocal about how good we are, especially since with 1.6 and now 1.7 is coming out, it's even better again. You know, we, we, we could certainly do a better job of advertising how good we are at tasks that people perceive um, are, are pretty poor. Yeah, that is interesting because I wasn't even aware that there is actually work going into improving the branching and merging and subversion. And that was one of the main reasons why I at some stage said, I'm pretty much done with it. You know, I just don't want to spend my time, you know, hours and days merging code, mm. codes, merging branches back into a trunk or branch with another branch or something like that. And that's obviously where Mercurial and Git as well are really, really powerful because they make it so easy. Yeah, one of the pro- one of the one of the problems they had in Subversion was, um, and it was part of, part of the underlying design really, was when you um, did it, when you tried to cherry pick a particular revision from a branch and put that back into the trunk, and then when you had finally finished with your feature branch, and then you tried to remerge your entire branch back into trunk again, the fact that you had previously um, merged a file and now you were trying to remerge that same file again, Subversion didn't particularly handle that, partic- that that task very well at all, and it caused lots of conflict errors. That has subsequently been all revisited and re-engineered and now is a, non- a non-issue for Subversion. Okay. Um, one thing I want to throw out when talking about um, relevance of su- Subversion versus the others, um, at, at Daemon for both... Far Cry and um, the internal site projects, um, we use Subversion. Um, and one of the reasons we use ex- also extensive use of externals. I don't know if you're familiar with externals yeah. in Subversion, nice. but they're, they're basically ways to create links within your um, checkouts to other projects within either within the server or even on external servers. And one of the well, we've had this discussion within Daemon on um, looking at Git or Mercurial, and one of the things that have been difficult about that was that that um, because we use such extensive use of uh, externals, and they're really helpful for us to be able to pull in these these modules, pull, pull in the Far Cry core, pull in the plugins very easily, and it's not quite as easy as that for Git and Mercurial. They have both of those have sub modules, sub repositories, but it's still not quite as easy as it is in Subversion. So if you're if you're familiar with externals and you're using that, it's it's um, you get a lot of benefits for that, and it's but it also means it makes it harder to switch to something else. So how does that differentiate from sub the sub modules in Git? Because that's um, the hashtag in the file pointing yeah, to. It, it's a little easier to use. Um, they're basic. They're more like um, they're more like symbolic links than full um, than full, full submodules. Um, yeah. So they don't require quite as much management. Actually, there are some. 
but on the other hand, there I also don't quite do the same thing as, um, for example, um, one of the limitations with with externals compared to sub-modules and sub-repositories is that they don't automatically keep track of what revision the the, the top-level project is in in um, in comparison with the sub-projects. They just say normally just say whenever you do a check out of this, just get the just get the latest version of trunk of of the other sub-projects. Um, but so it's not quite as sophisticated, but it's really easy to set up. That's that's pretty much the big benefit it has been for people using externals. So I've, I'm, I'm in the process of coming up with um, examples to show the rest of the team and how, how it would work in Mercurial. And I know for Git, it's a bit similar. One of the things in Mercurial that's nice, though, that Git doesn't have is that sub-repositories sub in Mercurial can be either Mercurial repositories or subversion checkouts or Git um, repositories too. So it's a nice way to pull in projects from different source control systems, which is pretty cool, I think. Dennis, when you work with Mercurial, do you use um, name branches or repository branches? Um, That's a good question. Um, And when you uh, mention name branches, do you mean like ticket numbers? Because that's what we use. Well, name, name branches are basically very similar to the idea of a branch in subversions. You, for example, you stay in you stay in your one repository, and you just have a branch which could be a feature branch or you know branch driven by a certain developer because they want to do something or, or a bug fix branch, whatever. And then you can merge them back within the same repository. But the original branch concept in Mercurial was basically that a branch is a clone of your original repository at a certain point. And that's a bit of a different story. And you can basically, how Mercurial is sort of, or was meant to work is you push your changes between different repositories to have that concept of branching and merging. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, um, what I've done, I, 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 ha- I don't like using... Um, name branches for things like features. Um, biggest problem with name branches is that they persist so that if after you merge them and you look back in the history, you'll see that name. You can't get you can't easily get rid of that name for the for the um, commits you made under that name branch, and yep. I know that that upsets a few people. Um, I, to be honest, I don't. I don't get why it upsets people because I don't think it's a big deal. It's, you know, you've done work in a feature branch and you've made commits to that feature branch and that's fine. Why wouldn't you not want it to be, you know, labeled with the name of that branch? What I don't get what the issue is, really. I, I, I think it's a bit distracting, to be honest, um, particularly as you start building more and more f- these feature branches. And so yeah, I've... And I've, I've ticket as a branch... It gets really overwhelming after a while when you yeah. see all the branches, all the all that going on. Ah, oh, now I get what you meant before. So a, your ticket ID is basically the label or the name of your branch. Exactly. Yeah. Ah, we do similar okay. things. Yeah. 
But you clear out your branches. I mean, after your feature branches, once they've been reintegrated and, and you're done with them, then they can stay in the history if you need to go back and get them. Mm-hmm. Which I quite like. Yeah. So I do use, um, well, with with the projects I've worked with, where I've been able to set what to use as name branches and what to use as um, clone branches, um, I do use name branches for um, for release and maintenance branches for projects because for those ones I really do want to know when I look back yet yeah, that that was a that was that was a branch for that release or these were the um, hot fixes for a particular release so okay. those are fairly useful to have name branches for but everything else I try to use um, um, clone branches so those unnamed branches so when I bring them back into the um, head repository they just become part of that history and you don't really see that that it was done in a um, done as a feature branch okay interesting yeah I just I thought I'd my... me- sorry I just sorry. thought I'd mention that you can um, with respect to what Dennis was saying about SVN externals you can actually set the revision um, that that the S that the external points to so it doesn't have to yeah. just sort of float and always um, obtain um, the latest head version of whatever it's pointing to. Yes, that's true. One of the and and possibly this would be nice if they added this in one dot seven or some other tools. But um, it would be nice if if you could automatically update that revision number instead of having to go and edit the um, the metadata for the checkout to to say, okay, I've updated it to revision one, two, three. Go change the um, metadata for that for that checkout. So when I commit that, it will remember what revision that um, external was at. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a feature that's that's built into the equivalents in Mercurial and Git. But I haven't seen that in Subversion. And it would be nice to have it if it was there. So if you can. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know what? You can always commit an enhancement request, submit an enhancement request to the mailing list. <laughs> the, the good old stay of any open source project. That's a wonderful idea. When will you be working on it? <laughs> That's great. Okay, well let's let's kick on. Uh, Mr. Henke, we haven't we haven't managed to hear from you yet. Yeah, and my topic ties in with all these other topics. Uh, I'm talking about task oriented workflow with. Uh, Adobe Flash Builder and ColdFusion Builder. And the tool that we'll be using is Myland and uh, TaskTop. So it'll glue all these external systems like Jenkins and the ticket system, the code repository, even if you do code reviews, all within your IDE. So you're not jumping to URLs or in the browser somewhere else to see your build. You could do your build right in Eclipse and see what happens and rerun it if you needed to. That kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, basically it's it's just a plug-in with any clips, and I'm going to show how to get it going with a CF Builder because a lot of people might be using it as a standalone, but I prefer when I use Eclipse to grab Eclipse from uh, Eclipse.org with the double E2, I think, project. Yeah, yeah I use yeah. the J, uh, J2E version. Yeah, that's one I usually prefer, but some people, since uh, they're not familiar with it, they just might install... CF Builder or uh, 
flash builder just as a standalone. So there's a little hurdle you have to do, but it's not. It's like five minutes, and then you get uh, myland up and going. And I'll just show you guys show that off. So. So, yeah, so two two questions for you. One, you mentioned um, two different products there, Mylan and Tusktop. Um, first question I have for you is, is what's the difference between the two, or is there a difference between the two? Uh, okay. Second question I have for you. Um, so once you have these tools in place, what does your process generally look like as you as you kind of go from you know starting a ticket to to writing some code and going on through from there? Okay. Um, the difference is, I'll, during my talk in, in this podcast, I'll use those interchangeably, MyLint and TaskTop. But MyLint is the open source version, and then TaskTop is the commercial version. So it has a little more features, well, a lot more features, and it's built on MyLint. So they provide back to MyLint. And MyLint actually is an Eclipse project. It's a top-level Eclipse project, and they've really integrated that into the workflow with Eclipse. So that's that's the differences. And then the my ticket process, like today, um, well, let's go back two days ago. The nice thing about this, bringing your tasks right into your IDE, focused right, uh, they're not something you think about later on. Because really when you're working in your IDE, you're, you're not working on five or six things. You're doing one ticket at a time, even though you'd like to think you're doing 20 things in your IDE. You're ideally fixing one bug or looking at this. So, like a couple days ago, there was four tickets that came across my desk. So, I opened up, there's a search with Mylan, too. You can go Control-H, and then there's a task, a tab that says Tasks. So, I had my four tickets. They were like 600, 644, 641, and so I searched for each one of those and pulled up the task and so I'm going to work on, let's say, 641. So then within my IDE, I'll activate this task with one click and then start working on the tickets or working on that task. And so then I, this one was a really simple one, so it was only like one file. So then work, worked on the next ticket and I'd find that one and then activate the task. And this is all within your IDE. So you're not leaving, you're not being you're not losing your groove like when you're coding or working stuff, you know, you get in your groove and you're not going to external systems. So then I completed those three tickets and that was two days ago. So today the tester got around to testing him and he had some fixes that he wanted me to implement. So all I had to do was reactivate that task and then the files that I touched were right there. Like I instantly left and they were exactly in the same the files were exactly open, so I didn't have to go searching for like these certain files again, or have to re relearn what I did before three. Even though it was three days ago, you know, I, it, I, there wasn't even any learning curve. I just reactivate the task and bam, make that simple change, give it back to him. So that's that's kind of my process. So. That's pretty cool. I'd, I've been using Mylan for, for a while. I've not made the jump to actually buying a, a pro TaskTop um, license. I haven't, to be honest, quite seen the need as of yet, but that's probably just because I haven't seen some features that, that have really grabbed um, me. But you're gone. The, Sorry, I, no, that's okay. The fee, It's only $99, I, I say only, yeah. but it, uh, that's the commercial version. And then what you might like is the integration part of it. I don't think Mylan has the integration plug-in for Jenkins and Hudson. So you'd be able to fire off builds right in your IDE, and you'd be able to see why they failed, and then you could tie in MX unit or 
your source control system to write within your IDE. So, I mean, that might be a reason for you specifically. That'd be pretty cool. But I, I, I love Lion. Um, I think it's great. I, I've used it both on commercial projects and also open source as well. Um, use it for Cold Spring and everything else. And, and particularly for that, I find it wonderfully useful because it's it's just like okay so i've got you know 10 15 minutes that i'm you know waiting for a process to run or waiting for a client to call or i'm up early or whatever and i can just jump back in where i was before it opens up the files where i was i can continue doing work for 15 minutes on that open source stuff and then when i get that client call or that process finishes or whatever it is i happen to be waiting for i can just go okay let's deactivate this task and then go back to something else so i can i can jump between things really easily without without having to do that whole phrase of where was i what was i doing what file was i working on all that sort of stuff so yeah i, I really like Marlin. it's a really nice project yeah and then the commercial version even has a better um time management tool i'd say so like you were saying you were jumping between tasks for clients billable hours and non-billable hours and then you're wondering where your whole day went you can see what tasks were open for what times and right through the IDE too. So then you could probably, if you're using Bugzilla or Jira or something, you could probably use that and automate it and do your invoices too that way. So it's, it's yeah, it's pretty powerful like Mark was saying. And then, oh, oh yeah, another concept we didn't touch upon was, so I was working myself with this ticket, these tickets this last couple of days. And then what I did was when I submitted the ticket through the IDE, I made my comments and passed the ticket along to the tester again. And then I said attach, I just checked a box and said attach context. And this context is pretty much just an XML file that gets attached to the ticket. And then I work with another guy, so he could go to the ticket and pull down that context and be exactly where I left off, like if I had to go on vacation or something. So you learn knowledge without even having to actually experience it. It's it's really awesome. Sorry, yeah, someone I'm was... Actually, go on, Dennis. Say, um, um, I'm actually evaluating um, Tastop at work at the moment for the... specifically for the... for that time tracking features, because that, that was something to... Um, it's really helpful to have something automatic that keeps track on how much time you spent on different um, tickets and that sort of thing so to, for billing purposes, that sort of thing. Um, so I've seen other processes in place where where you have a separate tool that you need to switch back to to say, okay, now I'm working on this, start the clock on that, then go back. And you find yourself having to remember to switch back to this other tool to, to tell it what you're working on. But by having that integrated into CF Eclipse or CF Builder, you don't even have to think about it. Just the mere process of of doing your work through the tool by activating the, the task, having it basically set up your set up your workspace for you to say, okay, these are the files that you're you're working on, and then when you switch back, that in addition to those benefits of managing that workspace for you, it's also man keeping track of that time. So when it comes at the end of the day or whenever to say, okay, go fill in your timesheets, the information's already there. So I find yeah. that tremendously useful. And then, yeah, and then you can just submit, like, if you wanted to, because a lot of things we do aren't necessarily tied into our IDE. Maybe you're fixing something on the server, but it's related to this ticket. So in the IDE, you're only working like an hour on this task. 
And so then you could adjust your out, your time to say, actually, it, this task took me three hours. And then you could just submit it. And like you were saying, also, it's it's not reliant on a specific ticket system or uh, source control system or, you know, code review system. It's it's the glue. It's kind of like Cold Fusion where it glues everything together for you. So. Yeah, one of the um, you it my, well, Tarstuff has has a large number of available connectors and f for you to track tasks, even things that you don't think of as um, task tracking things. For example, Gmail can be a task repository for Tarstuff. So if someone's if a client sends you an email and doesn't want to say doesn't want to submit a ticket through the ticket system, you can actually track your task through that email by by <laughs> having Tarstop connect to it. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So, and then um, I'll be doing a one-day workshop over Wheels. So we'll be covering um, just basically intro into Wheels. I'm condensing a two-day class that I did at CF Objective into one day. So. One of the cool things we'll be talking about is migrations, which is pretty much tracking your database alterations. And one of the students we, that took my class has really went awesomely gun ho with this. Uh, his name's, let me see, it's, uh, his Twitter handle is TallTroyM. And he's like, it's amazing to see what he's been doing after taking this class and then using wheels. So it's, a, it's gonna be a great workshop too, so. Cool, that sounds interesting. So, for for people who don't know what Wheels is or Confusion on Wheels is, um, do you maybe want to elaborate a little bit on that? Where it comes from, what the general ideas are of Wheels? Maybe just in a, like a two minute wrap up or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much, it's taking the concepts of of Rails, if you're not familiar with Ruby on Rails, and taking their ideas and making it into ColdFusion applicable. So. Okay. That's, yeah, migrations that's is a concept that exists in Rails as well, as far as I'm aware of, basically. And they took that migrations idea into ColdFusion then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a plugin. Uh, Wheels has plugins, and so it's called DB Migrate. And Troy's actually taken over this Git, and he's moved it onto GitHub since he's using it all the time. And uh, so okay. he's working on that. And yeah, I cover that in the class along with uh, just basic model view controller. Um, Actions, that kind of stuff. So it, we take a we take a simple blog application. Actually, this was a, this class with permission was ported over from a Rails class that I took in DC. That's so, cool. That makes okay. sense. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ported. I asked, got the guy's permission, ported his two day class into Wheels, and then I'm going to condense it two days for uh, for you guys. So. Sounds good. Interesting. Very, Very interesting. Good. Yeah. Alrighty, so um, we are already talking for more than an hour, one hour and six minutes. I think we should need to we need to wrap up pretty soon. Sounds good. All right. Um, Do you well, have any events you want to announce, Mark? Uh, tomorrow uh, is the Melbourne Adobe Developer and Designer Group Mad. Uh, Gavin, I believe you are presenting your your presentation actually on on continuous integration in MX Unit tomorrow night. I am. I'm using it as a um, rough draft. Should be should be good. I'll come down to uh, heckle and stuff. Thank you. Cheers. 
really good. Um, any of you guys got Kai? You got you got any events coming up? Um, I'm just looking for an email I got from Richard Turner Jones, who runs the um, Brisbane Adobe User Group, and because um, that was a user group date list. So today is what's the day? Today? The 21st. Actually, they have a meeting tomorrow. Um, the Brisbane Flash Platform Group on the 22nd of September. And then they have two more meetings, um, the 5th of October and the 20th of October. I have no idea what the topics are, but their website is www.baug.com.au. Wonderful. Okay, guys. Um, if any of you got... Okay, so going going back down the list, uh, Dennis, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you, website, Twitter client, Twitter, Twitter handle, what other details can you uh, give us? Um... Well, on Twitter, I'm at BoomerangFish, um, and I guess email is um, boomfish at gmail.com. Okay. Just leave it at that. That works. Gavin, what, what details do you want to share, if you want to share any details at all? Um, I don't tweet, um, but pe- <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to tweet about. I'm not that interesting, to be honest. Um yeah, my email is um, bo, B-E-A-U, at palcare.com.au. Wonderful. And Mr. Henke, what details you? I know you're on Twitter because I know I follow you. Yeah, my Twitter handle is uh, Mike Henke, H-E-N-K-E. And then my GitHub account actually has the training material on there, too. Somebody wants to go check it out. So it's uh, mhenke at uh, github.com slash mhenke. So, yeah, that's that's my stuff. All right. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. That was very, very interesting. Thanks for having me. Now I have another three presentations I want to go to as well. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need to, you know, that that agenda schedule creation tool gets more and more complex with all the additional rules we're putting in, like, to avoid conflicts and make sure that we can see all the sessions we want to see. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, Mark, how can people get hold of you? People can get hold of me if they want to physically by grabbing me and holding me down. Um, they can also reach me digitally at uh, on Twitter as Neurotic, on my website at compoundtheory.com. Um, and then you've also got my GitHub account on, as Mark Mandel. I'm also on G Plus as Mark Mandel. Um, so I'm generally around and doing all sorts of stuff. How about yourself, Kai? Um, people can... Get hold of me on Twitter as Agent K or my blog, which is blogginblack.de or my company website, which is www.ventigo-creative.co.nz. Um, um, and before we finish, I just want to settle one last thing that came up in the last episode of this lovely, beautiful podcast, where Mark and I had a discussion about <laughs> um, do we have actually more than two people Listening to our podcast, who are based in the US. <laughs> oh, oh and, you and, managed to see that. Oh, that's good. And it, it turns out when you look at the responses and comments on that episode twelve blog post, there are gazillions of people from the US there listening like to this. Four. Okay, <laughs> let's be honest here. I'm just. All right, I'm going to count through here. All right, one. I can. I still can see at least five, three, six, four, at least. Five. There are five. One. Hang on. One. Two, You're the three, math, please. Four, five, six, dude. What are you you can't right. count. <laughs> Sean, one, two, three, four. Oh, I missed one. No, it's, 
Ah, oh, there's Brian O. That's why, because I didn't see he said Brian Bloomington. Okay, so there's six. It's a bit less than bazillions. Well, but I mean, six of a comment count of of of, of ten is quite impressive. It's like sixty percent of our audience is US based. <laughs> no, it's, it's scientifically that's, proven. Yes. Now. <laughs> that's, that's you, the math wizard, t- makes that comment about statistics. This <laughs> <laughs> is a sample set, and. Uh, <laughs> That 60% of our, our listeners are US. I, I'm really, really happy to, to be able to close this recording and this episode with me being right and you not being right. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to give this one to you. I'll let you have it. Okay. <laughs> Fine. So, um, we'll be back in a few days, I guess, um, with a few more speakers. Wonderful. All right. Alrighty. Cool. Again, thanks, thanks a lot, everyone, for joining us. Thanks a lot for tuning in. And um, we'll speak to you soon on this channel. Uh Bye-bye.